This podcast is sponsored by GoGo, the leader in in-flight connectivity and wireless entertainment. Our superior technologies, best-in-class service, and global reach help planes fly smarter. Our partners perform better, and their passengers travel happier. Learn more at gogoair.com forward slash airline. IAG, the holding company for British Airways, Iberia, Fueling, and Aer Lingus, is continuing to outperform its peers. In fact, that outperformance seems to have only grown in the fourth quarter. IAG's Q4 operating margin was 9%, the same as Ryanair, which is not bad company. Not bad company at all, and an excellent result for the fourth quarter, an offbeat quarter in Europe. For a better comparison, Air France KLM posted a 2% operating margin in the same quarter. And while Lufthansa won't report for a couple more weeks, that airline is tracking towards something certainly much worse than 9%. Yeah, it was 5% for the most recent 12 months through September of last year. And and that's before they endured some strikes during the fourth quarter. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. And joining me is the imperturbable Seth Kaplan, (laughs) Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. We're going to dig deeper into how IAG is doing so well. We're also going to look at Aeromexico and Volaris and the Republic Airways bankruptcy. It's all coming up on the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. We're talking about IAG, which consists of British Airways, Iberia, Vueling, and Aer Lingus. They had a solid fourth quarter and a great 2015. For the year, the group chalked up $1.7 billion in net profits and a 10% operating margin. Seth, before we get into the details, 2015 was not just a year in the making. It goes back longer than that, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. The culmination of a lot of things that have gone well over the years. Uh, you know, one thing is that uh, the labor woes that we see at the IAG's big competitors, Air France, KLM, uh, Lufthansa Group, IAG went through that already uh, with, with its various airline properties. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's already come out on the other end. You've got a, uh, a low cost Iberia, rather low cost anyway for a European legacy airline, your British Airways mostly had gotten its house in order sooner. Uh, and and so it really had what, what in this week's issue we call the first mover advantage in terms of doing all that and, and, and cleaning itself up somewhat. Looking more specifically at the things going right at those airlines, uh, the list is long and I'll run through it. The workers aren't striking. The British economy is solid and the Irish and Spanish economies are growing. In Vueling's case, it's a great time to be an LCC in Europe. They've got good U.S. exposure. They seem to be less vulnerable to competition from Gulf carriers. So what am I missing from that list? And do any of those things stand out as the driving force in their success to you? Yeah, I don't know if if missing it per se, but, you know, London in particular. I mean, that kind of touches some of what you were saying, the British economy and, and, and the transatlantic exposure and so forth. But always important to remember that there's no other market, well, quite literally in the world like London in the sense that it's it's the biggest air travel market in the world uh, by a long shot, uh, you know, roughly a third bigger than New York, which is number two when you add up all the air- airports in each market. Yeah. And in terms of transatlantic travel and transatlantic very much is the place to be right now. Nothing else close to it. You know, Paris is second in terms of local demand, people traveling to or from a place, uh, you know, rather than just connecting through there. Those, of course, the passengers who pay premiums for it and non-stops. But Paris, 
Paris, a very distant second. Uh, you know, you know it's, it's good, but it's nothing like London. So, uh, you know, British Airways is the dominant airline in the dominant market. And that too, by the way, when you asked a moment ago about some of the things that they had done in past years to get them there, and don't forget that acquisition of, of British Midland, BMI, uh, you know, which, which gave them some more valuable slots at London Heathrow, enabled them to further consolidate their position there. That, along with the the joint venture with American, you know, again, something that happened in, in relatively recent years, later than, than some of the other European joint ventures were established, you know, that too prepared them for this. So uh, it's London uh, in the context of everything else that you mentioned. One thing that should be said, IAG's success is really not driven by fuel. They're surely benefiting from the fuel cost drop, but not tremendously so. Not tremendously so at all. I, I mean, their fuel costs dropped just 3%. Uh, year over year for the quarter. Compare that, for example, uh, with an airline, well, I just mentioned a minute ago, their joint venture partner, American. American's fuel costs dropped 41% year over year for the quarter. Uh, you know, Americans uh, at the other extreme, because we're talking about an airline that uh, trades in dollars, the US dollar, of course, has strengthened, and that is completely unhedged, you know, whereas IAG was was uh, relatively heavily hedged, uh, you know, most other airlines somewhere in between. But yeah, to put up those kinds of numbers that IAG did with basically no help from fuel, I mean, you're right, it, it helped, the fuel costs did drop, but yeah, particularly impressive in, in that context. And looking at the carriers individually, the operating margins were as follows. BA had a 12% margin. Foiling had, was 8%. Aer Lingus 7% and Iberia came in at 5%. How much of Iberia's problem is Brazil? Yeah, Brazil especially and just you know Latin America more generally. So, so that was uh, really the place to be uh, you know, for, for a number of years there. Uh, and, and just, just not anymore. Uh, now for context, uh, you know, that 5% for Iberia, Iberia's airline that was just in awful shape, not too many years ago. So even just that we talk about 5% margin, which was the laggard among those IAG airlines is a lot better than, uh, you know, than, than a lot of other European airlines, you know, think of Norwegian, a low cost carrier, negative 2%, uh, you know, for the quarter. So Iberia, a legacy airline, seven points better than that and, and you know, better to, to varying degrees than a lot of other airlines. Uh, uh, certainly not bad. But yes, the, the Latin American exposure, uh, you know, even though Iberia is the best position of, of, European, of Europe's airlines uh, to serve Latin America. Yeah, not not the asset that it once was. And now with a little more water under the bridge, how's the Aer Lingus acquisition looking? Better, worse or as expected? Yeah, at least as good, uh, you know, as would have been expected. And, and it is very much, I mean, you, you're correct that there's some water under the bridge, but it's really early days in terms of some of the synergies. I mean, uh, so, so look, it, you know, Aer Lingus is no longer a competitor. Uh, you know, it's, it's part of the group. So that's an early synergy. You know, you're no longer pricing against them. But they're not in the uh, the joint venture yet uh, across the Atlantic, you know, and, and so 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 that's a big deal. You know, imagine once they're able to, uh, you know, to, to really schedule and price with American in the context of the whole IAG family of airlines. That'll help a lot. It'll help American, too, by the way. And so, yeah, just their exposure, you know, very transatlantically focused puts them in, in, in a very good place. You know, again, relatively, if you just think of that as, as compared to what we were just talking about ago. Uh, Iberia, you know, just just kind of the the, the better exposure that that you'd rather have. Um, they've been expanding very r rapidly in recent years across the Atlantic. 
I'm still doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, all signs are that you know, so far so good uh, with Aer Lingus, although it is still early days. With with, with uh, you know, hopefully from their perspective, a, a lot of further benefits to come. Speaking of the transatlantic market, did IEG's results reveal anything about that market? One that has become a cash cow. Yeah, just further confirm that you know that, that you know just, just in 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 very simple terms, and and and, and this does oversimplify it because it's not the only difference between IAG and, and its two giant competitors. But yeah, you know, the, the, the airline that is the most exposed to the transatlantic market as a percentage of its overall business did the best. Uh, again, as, as you mentioned, Lufthansa not having yet reported, but very clearly won't have done as as well as IAG. So um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's still the place to be. Now look, that's no secret. <laughs> and there's, there's lots of new capacity coming online. I mean, so, so uh, you know, hard to imagine that it will forever continue to outperform if you get a lot of capacity growth uh, as everybody tries to crowd in there. But, you know, you also by and large have airlines that are uh, in that market, very focused on not oversupplying the market. So yeah, every reason to think that it can still be a rather good uh, market, albeit one that, uh, you know, when you look at Canada in particular is growing very rapidly. You know, WestJet now very eager to uh, serve the long haul market and so forth. There, Canada Rouge, of course, that unit, its low cost long haul unit growing. Uh, maybe a little more dynamism there in particular, and and uh, you know, threat to pricing and so forth. But by and large, IAG is happy to have that that transatlantic exposure. Switching gears, let's go to Mexico, where Aero Mexico uh, reported an 8% operating margin in the fourth quarter and 6% for the year. That's not bad, considering Aero Mexico is wrestling with a weak peso. How is the peso affecting things? Oh, it, it's it's a it's a huge threat, you know, because look, uh, so many of your costs are, are denominated in dollars, fuel, of course, um, but also your your aircraft ownership costs. Uh, you know, their their leasing payments uh, spiked for the quarter because. Uh, you know, because they're they're denominated in dollars. You know, and, and on the other hand, you're you're dealing with a um a local traffic base that's lost some spending power in terms of traveling abroad, at least. Uh, you know, in a market where transborder travel is 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 important, travel to the U.S. and so forth. You know, the offset, of course, by the fact that Mexico is now more affordable for Americans. But you know, you add all up, and and uh, yeah, you know, a weak local currency usually is not a good thing for an airline. Uh, you know, we've talked about it. there are perhaps exceptions in parts of the world, but generally not a good thing. And so, uh, you know, if you're in Mexico, in the face of all of that, you have, you have to be very pleased at, at how well you still managed to do. And Aero Mexico has a lot to look forward to, namely the Delta JV. Yeah, I, I mean, look, if this one goes as well as the other Delta JVs around the world have gone, you know, there's there's every reason to be to be very excited about that. I mean, you you, you look at you know, Air France KLM with Alitalia is still very much sort of the gold standard of JVs anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, one that dates back to 1993, KLM in Northwest originally, and you know, still have some of the same people really at the you know influential within within that JV. Uh, you know, the, the Virgin Atlantic one going very very well. Uh, you know, Virgin Australia, you know, good for what it is. Uh, you know, the, the, in terms of at least making. Uh, those airlines more competitive in, in that market than they would otherwise be. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, every reason to think that, that this one too should be rather potent and one that's not really replicable by a competitor. I mean, there, there, there is only one global airline, Aeromexico in, in Mexico. So, um, you know, there, there isn't, you don't have Mexicana anymore, you know, to, to, to form a JV with, uh, you know, say American or somebody like that. So, uh, so yeah, no, it, it uh, will help. Delta and Aeromexico 
um, uh, assuming I should say they get regulatory approval, which which I should also have said about the the uh, airling is coming into the uh, joint venture with American. Those are both pending regulatory approval. But um, yeah, every, every reason to think Delta Aeromexico will be a, a very powerful force. And Volaris, meanwhile, is doing what ultra low cost carriers tend to do. It's making money, whether it be pesos, dollars, or Krugerrands. <laughs> yeah, no, they're doing very well. Uh, you know, Volaris, um, an airline in the uh, the Indigo Partners family of airlines. So, so you know, it's the company that turned around Spirit. Uh, you know, that has been turning around Frontier. Um, you know, Wizz Air uh, was one of the airlines we got to market. Um, uh, you know, a rather good track market, uh, uh, track record rather. And uh, and yeah, here's Volaris uh, doing it. You know, they they. Um, they they went ultra a few years ago. You know they always were sort of the the uh, between them and Interjet, sort of the more classically low cost carrier of of the two. Uh, you also have Viva Airbus, the smaller, but um, by all appearances rather successful ultra low cost carrier in its own right. Uh, but yeah, Volaris we know more about because they trade publicly, you know, because they they issue uh, financial statements, uh, doing very very well. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, certainly. No reason to think that won't continue. Remarkable, again, in the face of what you mentioned with the currency issues, how, how they too have managed to hold up. Okay, staying in Mexico, por un momento más. <laughs> it's here that I found this week's Airline 101 question. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, for first-time listeners, uh, an Airline 101 question is basically about the basics of the industry. Uh, so here goes. Uh, we reported in Airline Weekly this week that Aeromexico was unable to grow revenues faster than it grew ASKs. Meanwhile, Valaris did accomplish that. What is this all about and why do we care about it? Okay, well, ASKs and for completely uninitiated that's a available seat kilometers that's just you know a standard measure of airline capacity that takes into account both you know how how many seats you have and how far they're flying uh, you also have asms available seat miles uh, they're used interchangeably just you know depending on what part of your world you're in so anyway uh yeah so so you know when you grow capacity your your revenues are likely to grow but the question is you know do they grow as much as capacity grows or do they not grow as much meaning you know, if they don't grow as much then maybe maybe you grew too fast uh you know maybe you you outpaced demand uh growth with your supply growth although it, that can all be okay too you know, if your costs are falling and, and when you grow, your unit costs typically fall. And right now we have falling fuel costs. And so uh, costs for airlines almost everywhere have been falling. So anyway, uh, you know, what you described of Aeromexico, the fact that their revenue didn't grow quite as fast as their as their ASKs, th that's kind of what's been happening for most airlines around the world. Um, and uh, and it, that has typically been OK, because what I just said a moment ago, you know, it, it, it's just so much cheaper to carry passengers right now with uh, with fuel being cheaper that, uh, you know, many airlines around the world. Yeah, their revenues didn't grow as fast as their capacity, but they're making more money now. And, and so so they're fine with that. So Valar is really the exception in that it's somehow managed to actually uh, have its revenues grow more uh, than than its capacities grew. Uh, and in an environment like this with costs, um, uh, you know, with this downward pressure on costs because of cheaper fuel, uh, that all is, is a recipe for, for very strong profits. That was a terrific answer. And last but not least, Republic Airways filed for bankruptcy. That's pretty crazy for an airline that had a 17% operating margin as recently as 2014. We said in this week's issue that it was due to a pilot shortage. We hear about an expected pilot shortage all the time. Is Republic's story the beginning of a trend? Yeah, remarkable. As you said, a, a huge operating margin as recently as 2014. But even in recent quarters, they haven't reported for the fourth quarter yet. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, in the third quarter, I think they had 10% or something like that. So, yeah, yeah hardly an insolvent company, but one that, uh, you know, that, that seems to feel that it's just on an unsustainable path, at least partly because of what you just said, the pilot shortage. Now, you know, by the way, even just, you know, is there a pilot shortage or not? Some semantics there, uh, you know, pilots, unions tend to say, no, there's no pilot shortage. Airlines just don't want to pay pilots enough. You know, you, you pay them more and, and, uh, and, and you'll be able to get more pilots to fly, uh, you know, in particularly smaller aircraft. But call it what you will. Um, there's at least a shortage of pilots willing to work for small plane operators at the wages that those airlines are willing to pay. Uh, you know, they just have better opportunities elsewhere. So and Republic, in fact, has been paying pilots more. I mean, they agreed to, to, to a new contract with them. Uh, just several months back. So it's, 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 you know, this bankruptcy is not at all about trying to slash, uh, you know, employee wages, you know, which is sometimes airlines when they answer bankruptcy many times, uh, that's one of the first things they do that, you know, by all appearances, that's not what this is about. Um, you, you know, they're under contract, uh, you know, in particular, for example, to fly 50 seat jets for Delta, uh, you know, they, they, they can't seem to find enough pilots to, to, uh, provide that service reliably and Delta even sued them, for you know, for for what Delta considers um, an operation that's so unreliable that it wasn't meeting the terms of its contract. So, you, you know, so 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 they seem to be just trying to restructure all of that, you know, to 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 perhaps get out of contracts that uh, you know that they just feel they don't have the means to to serve right now. Uh, you know, they could use it to get out of aircraft uh, leases, uh, uh, you know, that are that were priced based on a whole different world of of you know, fifty seat jets being in being in demand. Yeah, this is them just looking forward and 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 seeming to not see a way out for them. You know, and if you take a step back, by the way, you know the, the broader picture here is that these are airlines, Republic, uh, SkyWest, its larger uh, and by all appearances healthier uh, competitor airlines that regularly were were more profitable than their mainline partners up until not too many years ago. I mean, you go back a decade and, you know, most of the mainline airlines at one point or another were in bankruptcy and these airlines were putting up perfectly good margins for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, there was all kinds of demand for, uh, for those small jets, uh, you know, a, a more fragmented industry before the consolidation, you know, you had all these hubs in places like, you know, Cincinnati and Memphis and before that Pittsburgh, uh, you know, Cleveland, um, where, uh, I mean, they were just full of, of these kinds of aircraft, you know, the 50-seat regional jets. So plenty of business to go around for, for all these airlines. Passengers back then actually liked the 50-seat regional jets because at the time they saw them as an upgrade from turboprops that they'd been accustomed to flying, whereas now they see them as a, a bad alternative to larger regional jets, you know, 76-seaters with first-class cabins and all that. And Republic and, and its competitors were there to provide the service. Um, they uh, did not take the fuel risk. Uh, the 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 mainline partners fueled the planes, uh, uh, you know. So the price of fuel went up, which is what what largely pushed uh, some of those airlines finally into bankruptcy. And it didn't impact these airlines because uh, they were just paid to uh, you know to to operate the schedules that uh, that that uh, their mainline partners dictated. So uh, so quite remarkable to imagine, uh, you know, just the way things have changed since those days. And now through the rounds of consolidation, which, uh, you know, and ended up in a reduction of of the hubs and the 50 seat jets falling out of favor. And uh, very importantly, even the remaining airlines uh, sort of biasing toward larger aircraft, sometimes flown with their own pilots. You know, the Delta 717s that it, uh, it got from Southwest, uh, in many cases, replacing uh, regional jets. You know, maybe you'll have two 717 frequencies instead of three, uh, you know, 76 seater frequencies in a market or, or what have you. 
I had it all up in, and uh, yeah, uh, a space that was once the place to be in the U.S. airline industry, uh, you know, seen as, as uh, you, you know, devoid of many of the risks that face the mainline carriers. Uh, now, the really the one place where uh, where you have an airline in bankruptcy, uh, you know, even if it's sort of bankruptcy with an asterisk, you know, not not a uh, an, an insolvent company. Really remarkable indeed. Uh, and, and not something any of us would, would have predicted not too many years ago. And this story could affect Bombardier, couldn't it? Yeah, uh, you know, and and hard to say if this is sort of an aside or actually uh, perhaps a bigger part of the story than uh, than it might first appear. You know, Republic has on its order books um, an order for for uh, you know forty CS three hundreds, you know, the Bombardier C series jets for which it has no obvious use. It ordered those back when Republic owned Frontier. Frontier, as I mentioned earlier, now owned by by the, L, the ultra LCC specialist Indigo Partners, but uh, but Republic ha- had actually bought it, uh, and and you know, that too, gosh, uh, an interesting story in its own right. It uh, you know a, a reporter, a mainstream news reporter, asked me this week, um, interviewing me about the Republic bankruptcy. Uh, he, he said, you know, did Republic not see what was coming in the world, and did they not do enough to anticipate it? And I said, no, it's exactly the opposite. You know, Republic knew that the world was changing. Uh, knew that its core business was not going to be as profitable as it had been and was actually very proactive. You could say too proactive in trying to do something about that. They went out and 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 tried to get into the branded flying business, you know, actually be a, you know, you know, more of a mainline airline by buying Frontier. And uh, it, it just you know didn't work out for them. Uh, and, and if anything, they sort of wasted a lot of money and time on that. Uh, you know, arguably, as a, as opposed to just kind of <laughs> remaining focused on its core business, which remained profitable, just not as profitable as it, as it once was. So anyway, uh, when they had Frontier, they um, yeah they went out and ordered a bunch of C series jets. And when Indigo Partners bought Frontier, they did not take over those orders uh, for the the C series jets. I mean, you can only presume presume that they basically said, hey, look, we'll take the airline, but but we won't take those. And, and Republic kind of had no choice. And, uh, you know, and they haven't really said too much since then about their plans for those. But, uh, you know, for an airline that generally is only able to fly aircraft of up to about 76 seats under contract for uh, the, you know, for for Delta, American and United uh, and for an airline that doesn't have its own branded operation anymore, you know, to, 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 you know, to to deploy those jets, uh, no real obvious use for it. And so and, and this would all be, you know, speculation but informed speculation I mean, you can only imagine they've they've perhaps tried to get out of those obligations and then bombardier of course wouldn't uh you know be excited of letting uh oh gosh by some measures i guess you could say its biggest customer by by units ordered uh, certainly uh, for the for the uh, higher uh, margin cs300 out of those obligations you know it, it's it's part of this uh you, you know perhaps could be about giving it the flexibility within bankruptcy to do something about all those obligations that it would not otherwise be able to do. So yeah, terrible news for Bombardier, which has only recently sort of um, restructured itself. I mean, really in the process still of doing so to to just just to, to try to give itself a path going forward. And uh, you know, if something happens with those orders, I think it's forty firm and, and forty options, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that that obviously would would not be helpful uh, for for that cause. Hate to end the show on that unhappy note, but. We'll be back with brighter skies next week, I'm sure. (laughs) You can subscribe to this podcast at the Airline Weekly website or on iTunes or Stitcher. Seth, thanks as always. Thank you. I'm thinking we'll talk about Qantas next week. 
Yeah, there we go for some happy bright skies news. 